Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Anyone can look at a bicycle and see someone ride it. The skill can be explained, even studied. Someone could get a PhD in anatomy or neurophysical dynamics by investigating how this centaur-like marriage of human mechanical coordination functions to roll upright. A researcher may thereby discover amazing new facts that might, for instance, someday help paraplegics regain motion in the legs. We all know, however, that none of these specialists could ever actually ride on two wheels, no matter how much they understood, without first passing through the wobbly gauntlet of physically learning how to ride a bicycle and bringing what is in the head out into the body and thus into the wider world. Physical activity and skill is something no one else can do for you. Things get more interesting with architecture and design where, in our day and age, almost everything must be done for you by somebody else. The translation from theory, goal, or understanding into practice and hopefully successful results, is a very complex effort. Even to call it a team effort is to be wildly optimistic, a mess of both aligned and conflicting incentives and interests abound among clients, occupants, neighbors, governments, architects, contractors, and designers, just to name a few. In previous chapters, we have been focusing on a history of ideas, exploring why architects and artists believed what they did and how these core beliefs informed their design choices. We largely sourced primary materials for this work, documents written by the designers and artists themselves. Today, we look at practice. What was made and what it was like. Our history downshifts from the theoretical stratosphere towards foundational facts on the ground. Theory and concept are typically expressed in words, but when one examines a building or a work of art, the physical thing is often the document. So, in covering such an area, one often calls on physical in-person experience and secondary sources, meaning prior histories and commentary, especially when the objects of investigation no longer exist or were never built to begin with. As alluded to in the last episode, today's history looks into an unfulfilled dream of Kandinsky's to create an immersive art environment in Berlin, and into Weimar's Haus am Horn, a completed project from 1923 
that is canonically held to be the first built expression of Bauhaus principles. We will close by starting our examination of the Sommerfeld House, a project that does not just merely predate the other two, but that marks the threshold for the Bauhaus's evolutionary divergence. Selected images of today's three works are posted on our site, though we will describe several images that strict copyright would discourage us from posting. Since Kandinsky's pet project and the House am Horn come later in the timeline than the Sommerfeld House, today's Act Three will arrive there as if brushing off sedimentary layers, passing through the more familiar before reaching an earlier stratum. So we will begin by returning briefly to Vasily Kandinsky, who was eager to apply his theory with the resources of a whole school to fill his sails. In July of 1924, Kandinsky wrote to a friend that he was still working to have an old dream realized. Since 1889, the painter had wished to complete a synthetic work in a space that is in conjunction with the space. In other words, he wished to create what we might today call an immersive art environment. In her retrospective on Kandinsky, Angela Lampe writes that his inspiration came from visits to the remote oblast of Vologda, significantly north and slightly east of Moscow. There, he discovered that passing through doorways felt to him like entering magical houses, where being surrounded by the brightly decorated interiors of peasant homes was to step inside a painting. So when, in 1922, much later, the new Museum of Modern Art asked him to design monumental murals for their foyer, his dream felt nearly at hand. But this was, alas, a museum of modern art in Berlin, one that never got built because of the shortage of funding that followed the years when bread had cost a wheelbarrow full of marks. Despite his eventual disappointment, upon receiving the news, the pedagogical infrastructure of the Bauhaus workshops clicked into action to support his commission. Here was exactly what Grotheus had envisioned, a chance to synthetically fuse the fine arts craft, and architecture. In place of the as-yet unbuilt museum, Kandinsky's initial mural tests were to be shown in the so-called Jury Freie exhibition of 1922, 
The art was housed in the Landesausstellungsgebäude, that is, one word, an exhibition hall near the Lerter Bahnhof, now the site of Berlin's central train station, prefiguring by four decades a mode of artistic production that Warhol would gain notoriety for. Kandinsky created gouache studies that teams of Bauhaus students then manually enlarged to copy over on room-size canvases, in a process that likely resembled the development and painting of stage sets, Oskar Schlemmer, who was the head of the theater workshop, together with many students, collaborated to help manifest Kandinsky's vision. He studied and designed the bicycle. They rode it. Critical reaction to the installation was mixed. By the early 1920s, enthusiasm for the dawn of a new human consciousness that had driven so much expressionist creativity in the past two decades was losing legitimacy. People looked around and saw, especially after the war, these now middle-aged bohemians who had been preaching a countercultural renaissance since the 1890s, bloviating against a wind of hard facts that the world did not change nearly as quickly as declaimed, and as the cynical would argue, not at all. A new matter of factness, die neue Sachlichkeit, was taking hold. A movement which, though commonly referred to in English as the new objectivity, we prefer to more accurately, if awkwardly, translate as new thingishness. Several forces of ideology, economics, personal and municipal politics, even fashion, were converging at the Bauhaus to wipe the slate clean of pre-war artistic influence as technology and production were embraced. An early output of this confluence was the House am Horn, designed by Bauhaus instructor Georg Mucke and built for the Bauhaus's exhibition of summer 1923. The detached one-story, single-family house was intended to serve as a model home for modern, prefabricated residential estates. It never served that role directly, but from its perch on the hills overlooking the walls of old Weimar, history would see it cloned in spirit throughout the world. From the outside, the all-white structure looks like a square shoebox with a smaller square hat on top, a raised section which let natural light into the central living room. The house speaks to us today largely as a portent of what was to come in modernist architecture. 
built at a time when the imagined future was highly uncertain and hotly contested. The footprint of the building is a simple square with a neatly subdivided interior. Thus, the house's many white walls all abutted cleanly into rational 90-degree angles. The layout arrives well after Frank Lloyd Wright's flowing interior spaces. It is situated somewhat before the full articulations of Adolf Loos's centrifugally patterned Raumplan and the planar interlock of Mies van der Rohe's open-plan floors. The House am Horn's central feature is a large, common-area living room a medium square, offset, dead center, within the large square of the outer walls. This almost overly spacious common area is surrounded by a boundary zone of small squares and rectangles arranged by program of purpose, rationally sequenced. Water pipes come in selectively, needing access at only two corners of the house, yet still fully serve the kitchen and 1.5 bath areas, saving significantly on construction cost. When I visited this house, it was being used as an art gallery, but the original spatial arrangement remained. Imagine now, if you will, walking through the entrance and holding in your hand a paper with the floor plan image, showing the small front porch you just came in through at the lower center of the square. Proceeding clockwise after entering the door, you walk through and past the outer boundary of small squares and rectangles, the atrium, water closet, kitchen in the lower left corner, turning to your right into the dining room, passing then into the children's room, followed by the upper left corner into the mother's room, which is center top in this orientation. Further on, adjoining water closets, storage closets, and bath space are in the upper right corner. Turning from that leads into the father's room. It appears that combined and or separate sleeping arrangements for the happy and or unhappy couple was a built-in option. Adjoining the husband's space is a room labeled Nische, literally the alcove, and meant as a study or office for the man of the house. Desk and chair proportioned rectangles are indicated so that Mr. Modern can work or relax in peace at the farthest possible distance from his children. Mrs. Modern's private space is, on the other hand, placed closest to the children's bedroom-slash-playroom as she would be keeping an eye on them. A tidy guest bedroom is included in the lower right corner, adjacent the front porch. All of these features 
which many houses or apartments lack even today, are packed into a remarkably small footprint. 12.7 meters to a side, yielding roughly 161 square meters. By comparison, there are currently two-bed, one-bath apartments for rent in New York's Soho that spread their relatively limited amenities across 204.3 square meters. These overpriced two-bedroom New York City apartments are 22% larger than the house on Horn, a spatial trade-off in which fewer occupants receive more Lebensraum and not as many toilets. In such a manner, more is less. Though the House Am Horn's original furnishings were in the incredibly colorful and expressive manner of the Weimar era's weaving workshop, and the chairs were made of wood and not yet nickel-plated tubes, one certainly isn't entering an enchanted realm where the door is the frame of a painting you step into. The smooth white walls and starkly simple geometry achieve a distinctly antiseptic impression. Somehow, the Russian peasant houses had presented Kandinsky, perhaps not with the forms, but surely with the kind of power that the Bauhaus had wanted to cultivate for the masses, but was, at least in this case, utterly incapable to reproduce. Historians like to talk about starting from zero, presenting white walls and spare lines as a new beginning, and this certainly was a distinct break from what came before. Even satirists of the Bauhaus, like Tom Wolfe, repeat the refrain, starting from zero, about these white, cubic, little boxes on the hillside. Grotius would also eventually frame the Bauhaus output in this back-to-basics way, though he never saw the tabula rasa as a place for design to tarry for too long. But was the house on horn really the beginning of built expression at the Bauhaus? Picture Kandinsky's idea of highly compressed time for the Bauhaus at a somewhat more geological scale and an earlier built project, one that has faded into the shadow of Amhorn's collecting most of the historical coverage emerges. Our view becomes akin to that of Heinrich Schliemann looking at the Hill of Troy and seeing a huge, well-built wall. But then, on closer inspection, underneath that wall was another, older ring, since burned and toppled. And another, and another, and another. Not only does the earliest Bauhaus-built habitation no longer exist, likely 
a victim of allied bombs, the memory itself is already half-buried. The first dwelling the Bauhaus took on was the Sommerfeld House, a Berlin-area villa completed in 1920 that Grofius and Meyer's firm was commissioned to build. As the early masters, mostly painters, instructed the students in the fine arts, the theory based in class efforts on craft and form that had been shaped by Itten's introductory course were taken to task in this project. The apprentices formed the team assisting Gropius's firm in the production of the house. Magdalena Droste's monograph on the Bauhaus comments that in the photo taken for the Topping Out Party on December 18, 1920, the male apprentices all wore workers' outfit uniforms, and the women, nearly 50% of the students at the time, were given special matching headscarves to lend the final picture a guild-like appearance. For the purpose of cost reduction, the client, real estate developer Adolf Sommerfeld, had asked for the villa to be built out of exotic teak wood salvaged from the wreck of a battleship. A more tantalizing prospect for a school wishing to pull Europe up from the ashes of war could hardly be envisioned. This house was somewhat bigger than Amhorn, with two levels instead of one, and could with fairness be called a richly executed cousin of the American bungalow style. Projecting eaves under a low-angle-hipped roof recall the prairie-style homes of Wright, and as Wright himself made claim to, integral ornament, decoration that was not stuck on or applied, but physically part of the structure. Droste strains to make a similar claim for this house. In a revealing overstatement, she writes that the decorations both outside and inside are inseparable from the construction as a whole. After all, could a fossil ancestor of the Bauhaus's Homo Modernus include actual impressions of ornament? Only if one was very careful to explain them away as the approved, non-applied variety. Modernist architecture was supposed to have banished ornament. Yet here, at the start of the Bauhaus, its abundance had to be retrospectively excused as the good, or at least acceptable, kind of decoration. Facts remain. The highly detailed interior stairway featured a roughly meter-wide floor-to-ceiling pattern of herring-boned wall paneling with beveled edges to each panel, serving almost as a teakwood veneer. Individually carved boards in ultra-fine detail are inset 
all along the banister. Where the house on horn had simple windows with clear glass, the Zomerfeld house had a large stained glass window above the stairwell that would have bathed the stairway angles of the tropical wood in flecks of light during the day and shone out into the countryside at night. The detail, color, and ornament even setting aside the debate of calling the decoration integral or applied, is a momentous contrast to what came not much later. A decisive shift would soon be underway. A world divides the two years between these two houses. Join us as we brush off this architectural archaeopteryx and the future that almost was our past. Next, on Lapsus Lima.